1: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, this week a ton of economic reports for investors to consider. I'm Tom Busby in New York.
2: I'm Caroline Hepke in London, where we're looking ahead to what comes next for the global aviation industry meeting in Lisbon.
3: I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look at the types of fiscal stimulus that Chinese policymakers might add to recent monetary measures.
4: I'm Kaylee Lyons in Washington, where we're gearing up for the second gop presidential debate
5: that's all straight ahead on bloomberg daybreak weekend on bloomberg 1130 new york bloomberg 991 washington dc bloomberg 1061 boston bloomberg 960 san francisco dab digital radio london sirius xm 119 and around the world on bloombergradio.com and via the bloomberg business app Good day to you.
1: I'm Tom Busby. Last week, the Fed hitting pause again on interest rate hikes, but signaled that rates will remain higher for longer and that another rate hike will likely be needed this year if appropriate. This week, the Fed and investors get a host of economic reports offering insight into how the economy is holding up as we head toward the fourth quarter against the backdrop of oil approaching $100 a barrel again, the restart of federal student loan repayments, and some labor strife. A lot happening in one week. And to try to sort out what it means, we're pleased to welcome Anna Wong, Chief U.S. Economist with Bloomberg Economics, and Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. Thank you both for being here. We're glad to have uh, the opportunity. (laughs) Well, Anna, let's start with what we saw last week from the Fed. What changed in the Fed's outlook on jobs, inflation, GDP, and, of course, how that affects its dot plot as we look ahead to 2024?
6: Yeah, I think the most notable changes in the summary of economic projections is that the Fed has completely embraced the soft landing outlook. So they revised down or, or really slashed the unemployment rate for this year and unemployment projections for, for the next two years. They now think that unemployment rate at the end of this year would be 3.8%. And what that means is that it would not satisfy the SOMS rules identification of recession. So whereas in the previous dot plot in SEP, the the unemployment forecast, basically imply that the Fed um, sees a recession happening this year. And looking further out, it also suggests that they see that um, unemployment rate does not necessarily need to go up in order to quell inflation. They now see the peak unemployment rate at 4.1% next year. So correspondingly, this is why they see that uh, uh, that 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 rates should be held higher for longer. So in the dot plot, they still see one more hike for this year, and they see that uh, rates would stay at 5.1% in 2024 and on the upper threes in 2025. And so that is entirely consistent and driven by the uh, improved unemployment outlook.
1: And Michael, inflation. They've also seen a a, a little change in their target for inflation over the next year.
7: Well, this is the part that's a little inconsistent. They did uh, raise their growth forecasts and lowered their unemployment uh, forecasts, but they also predict that inflation is going to go down, uh, which implies that this soft landing in this stronger-than-expected economy isn't going to be particularly inflationary, uh, which is fine if if that's what happens, uh, but then it raises the question of uh, why are rates, why are you still holding in reserve the opportunity to raise rates if you think that uh, that you're not going to need it. Uh, Obviously, they want to keep their options open. Nobody wants to be uh, backed into a corner and suddenly have to apologize for coming back in and raising rates when uh, nobody expected it. But it does suggest that they see a kind of new regime here. And certainly the, uh, the Phillips curve, uh, at least, appears to be dead at this point as far as the, the Fed is concerned. Unemployment going down uh, and no inflation at all, uh, which is kind of a major turn in uh, their thinking.
1: And how about economic growth? Because we get a GDP read for the spring's second quarter for this year. But what's their projection change on on growth?
7: Well, they raised their their, their growth forecast significantly, uh, more than doubled it for this year, and then uh, raised it by four-tenths for next year to 1.5%. That seems reasonable, given what we are seeing in the economy right now, although, um, as uh, Jim Bullard cautioned me this week there's always recency bias uh, in in your forecasts and you're looking at the the most recent numbers so Something could go wrong and and that's where I turn it over to Anna because Anna has been predicting something is going to go wrong in the fourth (laughs) quarter.
6: Yeah, Mike, I I thought what Mike's, one of the most interesting thing that Mike just said is that there seems to be a regime change in thinking uh, within the FOMC um, really embracing this immaculate disinflation idea. But uh, the thing is, the outlook in the next couple of weeks is highly uncertain we have the potential uh, widening and escalation in the UAW strikes, oil price going up to $100 per barrel, and also potential government shutdown. Yet in the FOMC uh, forecast, there's a section that asked uh, participants about their uncertainty over the forecast. And interestingly, across all the economic variables, they indicate that there's less uncertainty. So basically, not only is the FOMC projecting a uh, regime shift in this immaculate disinflation. They're really certain about it, with more confidence over this outlook, even as the economic uh, environment we're facing is actually extremely uncertain in the next couple of weeks.
1: Wow. And in this next week, we're going to see something that uh, could change things. It's the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, the personal consumption core price index. Mike, I know this is closely watched by you as well. What are we looking at? Because now we'll shift from what happened to what we're going to see ahead this week. Well, there's two reports next Friday. One is
7: on uh, PCE, which uh, a lot of people will be watching, of course, at the Fed. The expectation is we're going to see a rise in the headline number brought about by rising energy prices. It's the core that the Fed is going to be focused on. And there. Economists see no change in the rate of inflation on a month-over-month basis, just two-tenths of a percent, but that would push the year-over-year down to 3.9 percent, which uh, is a significant drop uh, going forward Uh, for the Fed to get. The forecast it has for the end of the year probably means inflation needs to come in a little bit even stronger. Uh, but the Fed um, is going to look past oil prices. Uh, they always do. They're going to relate that to the economy by looking at the uh, later release on Friday, the University of Michigan's uh, Expectations Index, sentiment Index, and they'll be looking at uh, what people think inflation is going to be like, because if uh, oil prices keep going up and gasoline prices keep going up, then what you have is a question about inflation expectations becoming unanchored. So they'll want to make sure that people aren't starting to think inflation's getting embedded in the economy. So two important reports uh, next Friday. Also, as part of that PCE report, we get uh, personal spending uh, numbers and that'll be interesting because uh, we saw a little bit of uh, weakness in the retail sales numbers but those don't include services so we'll see if people are still outspending or if they're
1: starting to pull back Uh, speaking of pulling back because I mentioned earlier is the federal student loan repayments which will start this coming week by uh, October 1st they're due and that may change spending habits for millions of Americans who owe billions of dollars. Anna, what's your take on that?
6: Yeah, actually, we have already see st- st- student loans borrowers repaying a lot of that loan starting already in August, um, and so um, uh, we estimate that uh, that would mean uh, possibly a hundred billion per year less in uh, less in consumption, but put toward. Repaying student loans that so that could shave off as much as 0.6 percent from uh, consumption an, um, annually, and if it this change happened uh, is concentrated within a quarter, it would it could uh, have a you know pretty significant, close to one percentage point drag on consumption.
1: Well, now, there's also a ton of housing data coming up, including two reads on home prices in July. We have new home sales, pending home sales for August, interest rates solidly above 7 percent, home prices just off their all-time highs. Uh, Michael, what do you expect to see, And, and is there any good news in housing? (laughs)
7: <laughs> well, uh, there has been good news for home builders because uh, people can't buy uh, existing homes at this point. There isn't much inventory, so they're buying uh, new homes. So we will get a report on new homes next week. And uh, it is expected to go down a little bit. Uh, some of that may be weather-related. Uh, we shall see housing starts were uh, were off a bit, but likely weather-related. Uh, we did see last week the existing home sales numbers uh, fall by another 7 tenths to just over 4 million, uh, the weakest basically uh, this year. But prices are going up, uh, which just makes it even harder to get that the, the whole industry going. And it is going to take a while. W- one of the things we don't know is how low do... Uh, mortgage rates have to go. In other words, how much does the Fed have to cut before you reach a level at which people will go back into the mortgage market? For right now, uh, certainly the
1: existing home side is frozen. Yeah, it's, it's terrible out there. And Anna Wong, Chief U.S. Economist with Bloomberg Economics, Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent. A lot to look forward to. I want to thank you both for joining us this week. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we take you to Europe and preview the World Aviation Festival in Lisbon. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, we preview the second Republican presidential debate, minus Donald Trump. But first, the World Aviation Festival is billed as one of the biggest annual events for the industry, and it's taking place this week in Lisbon. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker.
2: Tom, global aviation faces quite a few challenges – soaring crude oil prices at a time when airfares are already high, labour costs squeezing profit margins, a sluggish supply chain and growing emphasis on the environmental impact of the industry now I discussed some of these with Bloomberg's aerospace reporter Kate Duffy she has the lucky job of reporting from Lisbon in the next few days on the plans from commercial airlines airports and all the other businesses that supply and support them including more than 100 startups I began by asking her who she thinks is going to be attending the World Aviation Festival
8: There'll be a whole host of attendees at the World Aviation Festival this year from major airlines, airports, suppliers and other aviation groups really. So the biggest names from airlines are Emirates CEO Tim Clark, IAG CEO Louis Gallego and Ryanair's Eddie Wilson. But a range of other airlines are also attending well-known names including EasyJet, British Airways, TAP and the new Riyadh Air. Um, I've also counted around 30 airports across the world are on the list, speaking on panels and roundtables. And then there are the suppliers, the data providers, uh, travel agents and other aviation groups speaking and attending. So I'm expecting some good debates to come up over the two days on there. There's a lot moving for the industry. What do you think the focus is going to be this year? So looking at the agenda, many airlines will be discussing the hurdles they've faced over the past year and also how they're looking to overcome those future challenges. For example, TAP, CEO Rodriguez has an interview with Bloomberg's Guy Johnson about difficulties and re-emerging stronger and there's also a panel on foreseeable mar- uh- foreseeable headwinds for aviation in 2024 and it's worth mentioning also that it's not long before the dubai air show kicks off and execs like um, tim clark may give an insight into what we can expect further down the line of course sustainability and the environment with the scaling up of sustainable aviation fuel will play a part um, as well as supply to chain challenges post-covid recovery demand now we're heading into the winter and Mm. of course air traffic control disruption which we've seen a lot of this summer
2: yeah absolutely what do you think the biggest issues though um are going to be when it comes to the discussions you know you mentioned a few of them that have really rattled the industry and we haven't even touched on the supply chain uh, overhang
8: yeah, for many airlines, the air traffic control disruption and strikes in Europe um, were a massive frustration, as they caused cancellations and delays, and not a good look when you're stranding, you know, passengers around the world too. And the recent technical failure at Nats in the UK sent airlines into turmoil, and it took them days to recover, which some bosses like Ryanair's Michael O'Leary and EasyJet CEO um, have, have really criticised. So I think some of the discussion will be on how the industry can and should avoid these problems in the future and whether that ramping up hiring or installing better tech systems is the way forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you mentioned another issue which is widespread across the the aviation industry at the moment is this sluggish supply chain backlog. You know manufacturers are lacking spare parts for aircraft and therefore airlines are having to wait much longer to fill up their fleets Um, and it's frustrating for those airlines which are now having to deal with some of the recently discovered engine issues um, uh, that that require some engines to be removed and those are the Pratt and Whitney engines um, over the next three years. So there will be concern about the demand as well for the the Next travel season, mm. um, you know, summer was a blowout for airlines, with many reporting better than expected um, results. But the, the next focus is on how they can sustain the demand in this winter, in
2: this winter season. Yeah, especially as oil prices are going up, and obviously that has a huge impact on the industry.
8: Yeah, oil is the singest, bigger, um, single biggest expense for an airline. Um, so many have struggled to cope with the high oil prices recently. You know, some air ca- U.S. Ca- carriers slashed their profit outlooks for the third quarter. They blamed one of the factors on on being a jump in oil prices. Um, But when oil prices jump, so does um, inflation. And this means that the costs can be passed on to the customers. And at a time of the cost of living crisis, Mm. you know, it's taking a toll with mortgages, groceries and energy prices jumping. And more price-conscious passengers might be thinking twice about spending on a lavish holiday or a plane ticket abroad. So it's clear oil volatility is a big pressure point in aviation at the moment as the outlook for travel post-summer remains quite uncertain.
2: Yeah, what is the passenger experience then out of all of this? What has it been like for travellers recently? Is it the end of kind of revenge travel that we saw post the pandemic? yeah so covid nineteen posed a huge challenge
8: for airlines, and, and of course passengers were severely disrupted um, by this and this year has been probably just as bad with the air traffic control disruption and strikes that we've seen in terms of revenge travel, there is this sense that passengers are spending you know maybe more on on t- some passengers spending more on luxury tickets mm. um, but there is a concern about whether price hikes will will happen further and whether this will put customers off in the future from buying plane
2: tickets yeah Technology-wise then, this event has all the suppliers, so what sort of things do you think they're going to be demonstrating or discussing as the kind of solutions for, for the industry?
8: There's lots on airport technology, how to make the um, passenger experience more seamless, uh, lots on customer experience, AI Um, just making the process for passengers more smooth when flying and cutting out the old fashioned manual ways of doing things. Sometimes we've seen this go wrong in the past. Some airlines have trouble with their apps. You know, passengers often complain on social media about the accessibility of an airline's app. So there seems like there will be panels on how the industry can make
2: the digital side more comfortable for the passengers. And there'll be lots of airport leaders there as well. I mean um, about 60% of the festival is made up of sort of European players but also quite a lot from the Middle East and the rest of the world. There will be um, airports represented Dubai, Hong Kong, Winnipeg. They're all speaking at the event. What sorts of things do you think they're going to be thinking about? So from what the agenda says um, airports will be discussing how to make their operations
8: more digital, um, how to improve the airport experience for passengers through tech and sustain sustainability. Some airports have had a rough ride this summer, whether having to cater for passengers um, who've experienced delays and cancellations or having to deal with natural flooding disasters, Mm. um, extreme weather events. Um, Others such as Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport have struggled with handling luggage and that's led to a lot of passengers not getting their bags on time. So I think how airports are going to go forward with the tech and help passengers make their travel more smooth is is what is going to be discussed mm. at the festival, yeah.
2: That was Bloomberg's aerospace reporter Kate Duffy talking to me ahead of the World Aviation Festival in Lisbon. She'll be there along with Bloomberg TV's Guy Johnson. I'm Caroline Hepker here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6 a.m. in London. That's 1 a.m. on Wall Street. Tom.
1: Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend... The second Republican presidential candidates debate takes place at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California, and we will get a preview with Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha.
5: Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, to London, DAB Digital Radio, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend.
1: I'm Tom Busby in New York with your Global Look Ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. Republican presidential candidates are gearing up for round 2, preparing for the second primary debate in Simi Valley, California, but once again, the front runner won't be on stage. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines.
4: Yeah, that's right. This coming Wednesday, candidates will take the stage once again. Although there will probably be fewer of them. This time around than there were at the first debate, the threshold to qualify is higher. One thing we know for sure, though, is that former President Donald Trump, who remains the front runner in this GOP race, will not be there. He's going to counter program again here to talk about all of it with us are two of our all star national politics reporters, Gregory Cordy and Ryan Teague Beckwith, who are here with me in Washington. So, Ryan, if I could just begin with you. Who has the most to gain or lose at this point in the election cycle, uh, given what we're seeing in polling lately, how polls have changed since the first debate? Who needs this to work out in round two?
9: I mean, this is a shot for Ron DeSantis to try to kind of revitalize his campaign. At this point, he is polling about as far behind Donald Trump as uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is polling behind Joe Biden in the Democratic primary. So uh, he needs any sort of thing he can get to uh, juice that campaign. Um, I think it's probably more of an opportunity for Nikki Haley or Tim Scott, some of the people who are running as kind of the backup plan uh, in case DeSantis falters to try to assert themselves, um, get some kind of moment that uh, people will recall um, Haley, I think had, a, a, a brief moment at the last debate when she was talking about abortion. Um, but I don't know, uh, I don't know if, if they'll, it's still a crowded field. I don't know if they'll have that chance. Gregory, what do you think about this?
10: Well, I think it's an important debate for everyone on that stage, obviously, but, uh, especially for the ones, uh, actually at the lower end of the polling range where, uh, the, the Republican party has designed this debate season to, start to weed out some of these lower polling candidates. And so for the first debate, you had to poll at just 1% in three national polls to get on the stage. Now that threshold's moving up to 3%. We don't know what the threshold is going to be for the third debate, but it's going to be even higher. So for uh, candidates like uh, Tim Scott, who we haven't mentioned yet, or Chris Christie, uh, certainly Doug Burgum and uh, uh, Asa Hutchinson, if they even make the second debate stage, are mm-hmm. going to be under a lot of pressure to really have a turnaround moment because as soon as they drop off the stage, it's hard to imagine them coming back. And then, of course, uh, Ron DeSantis, of course, uh, he has been, his polls have been moving in the wrong direction. He needs to turn that around and so needs to have a, a breakout performance. But look, this is also a, a debate where. Uh, we who knows what the, the ratings are going to be. It's a little bit more of a niche audience. It's going to be on Fox Business News as opposed to Fox News. may have a smaller audience. It's in a different time zone. Uh, so it's really going to take a, a big moment for any one of these candidates to get the attention they need to – to be seen as a serious challenger to Donald Trump.
4: Yeah, Gregory, I'm glad you brought up the candidates who are kind of at the lowest rung, if you will, of polling at the moment. Because we saw after the first debate, shortly thereafter, Francis Suarez, the mayor of Miami, who hadn't qualified, dropped out of the race. And I personally have asked Burgum and Hutchison if... They would drop out if they didn't qualify for the second. They didn't tell me yes, but I guess we'll all kind of have to wait and see on that one. But is this the point? Are we now at the point of the race where we will start to see more of a thinning of a field? perhaps like many candidates dropping at once, Gregory?
10: Yeah, I mean, I think the lesson that the Republican Party learned through 2016 is that uh, having too many candidates in the field. And remember, at this point in, in 2015, Uh, We had, what, 17 different candidates? Yeah, two Uh,
4: different stages uh, were required. (laughs) You needed to
10: spread the debate over two different nights. There was a so-called kids' table debate, right? Um, And that was just untenable. And the Republican Party decided we're not going to have that situation again. Uh, Because that's a situation that led to this, um, really, uh, the Trump vote and then the anti-Trump vote being divide over two or three different candidates, Trump was able to divide and conquer. Trump may still yet be able to divide and conquer, but the idea is you need to present uh, Republican voters with a smaller menu of choices or else uh, it really it's going to be Trump by default.
4: So he brings up Trump, Ryan, who was the elephant not in the room, but very much in the room at the first debate. And this is going to be the same thing. Right. He's not going to be there again. Once again, he's counterprogramming this time by being in Detroit to talk to the United Auto Workers. Talk to us about the effect of that.
9: Yeah, I mean, well, it obviously it robs the room of a lot of the crackle and uh, electricity that you get from having a real live debate. You know, I mean, having a bunch of people sort of arguing intramurally, I think it hurt him a little bit in the last time because Having all these people on stage talking amongst themselves, um, even though they were often talking about him, without him there, I think, kind of was the first glimpse you might have at a post-Trump Republican party and what that might look like and what the debates it might have. Um, I, you know, it, but it also means that the people who are tuning in to watch this are like really not normal. Uh, I include myself in that. Um, yeah, I mean, being paid to watch it is my job. Uh, but like, you know, who's going to turn into watch a debate without the frontrunner in it? It's going to mm-hmm. be like a really select audience of kind of uh, people who are really into politics. So that uh, that's why I think probably the more important thing at the debate will be to score the kind of memorable moment that gets replayed on TV, that gets f- goes viral on social media, so that the people who aren't tuning into this uh, see that, because that's a chance for some free publicity, and I think it's also uh, a chance for uh, for you to create some content for your super PAC mm. to use. Uh, the the Desantis super PAC has done an ad that just basically featured his response to uh, a question about the border with Mexico. Um, you know, they basically turned that into an ad. Uh, and that's a great way for him to not coordinate with them, which he's not legally allowed to do by putting this out in the public domain mm. and them to borrow that. So I think uh, it may be more important to have a moment than to actually do well over the entire debate.
4: You have me, Ryan, thinking back to some of the moments of the first debate that at least stick out in my mind, one of them being former Governor Chris Christie telling Vivek Ramaswamy he sounded like chat GPT, another being former Governor Nikki Haley telling Vivek Ramaswamy that he has no foreign policy experience, and it shows. Those were kind of two soundbite moments, if you will. That's what we would call it in my TV world or radio world as well. Are we still talking about Ramaswamy in the same way, Gregory? It seems like he did get that kind of spike- At least in, you know, being something people were talking about on social media in the immediate aftermath of the first debate. But where is his candidacy now?
10: Every other candidate on that stage, other than Ramaswamy, has a long career in politics and has crossed paths with each other at some. But if you had asked the seven other candidates... What they knew about Vivek Ramaswamy going into that debate, none of them had ever met him before. This is the first time mm-hmm. they'd ever seen him. And really uh, all of them had sort of an interest in knocking him down a peg. Uh, partly because he is the outsider, he was seemed to be the easy target. Uh, Ron DeSantis is certainly threatened by Ramaswamy's rise. He's in third place and, and rising in a lot of the polls, and for the people below Ramaswamy, obviously they want to be the one, if not to get the second place, obviously they all like to be the f- first place, but if not to get the second place, get to get the third place to then be the 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 challenger to Desantis, um, and so there there was that dynamic there, and frankly, uh, Ramaswamy an easy candidate to go after just because he he uh, his positions on issues as expressed in his different books that he's uh, written and on the campaign trail are a little inconsistent, to say the least, um, and a little unorthodox. And so that, uh, for these more conventional candidates, makes them an easy target. So, yeah, I would look for that dynamic to continue next week.
4: All right, well. I think it's going to be interesting. Either way, no matter who's there or who's not, looking forward to both of your coverage of it when it happens next Wednesday. That's Ryan Teague Beckwith and Gregory Cordy, national politics reporters here at Bloomberg. And Tom, we'll send it back to you.
1: Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines reporting from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head to Asia to see what China can do to power up its economy again. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
1: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. What fiscal stimulus would it take for China to power up its economy again and the timing of it? Let's get to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia co-host Brian Curtis to find out more.
3: Tom, China's economy has shown some signs of bottoming out of late, but that doesn't mean that investors are coming back. Foreign funds have continued to flow out. There appears to be some lingering tensions between policymakers thinking that they're on the right track and others who are calling for more aggressive support. Now, in the past few days, the monetary policy head at the PBOC said the central bank has the tools to get the job done. And the former PBOC governor, Yi Gong, said the PBOC should ramp up policy. In the meantime, the city of Guangzhou eased home buying rules for non-residents. Many investors out there are calling for more fiscal support we heard from Helen Chu at NF Trinity.
6: I do think that monetary policy has already played its role and I think what's more important going forward is going to be whether the property segment can stabilize. That's going to be very crucial in terms of the fact that it's you know two-thirds of household wealth. Uh, It's going to be uh, really impactful in terms of consumer confidence and spending and consumption overall. So I actually think that there needs to be more policy support on the fiscal or property fronts and that's likely to come through in the next three to six months.
3: Helen Zhu, Managing Director and CIO at NF Trinity. Joining us now is Jill Desis, Bloomberg's China Economy and Government Editor. So Jill, what are you hearing from investors about the kind of of fiscal support they'd like to see?
11: I think that at this point in this recovery cycle, it's really about, um, I guess, trying to figure out what else is happening with the property sector. I think we've known for a while that, you know, China's been incredibly reluctant to roll out any kind of giant fiscal stimulus. I don't think they're going to be running around cutting checks for everybody um, and trying to spur spending in the economy that way. I'm also just not even sure how effective that would really be. When um, you know, the type of massive fiscal stimulus I think is what China's really wary about because it's um, what they believe got them into trouble, uh, you know, several years ago when they tried rolling out massive stimulus. So at this point, I think that what you just saw in Guangzhou, for example, might be a little bit more realistic in terms of how exactly the country is trying to ease the property sector. So what Guangzhou did, so this is uh, one of uh, of China's four biggest cities, the tier tier one cities, uh, they just eased some home buying rules so that um, people who are non-residents of these urban districts, um, as long as they've been paying taxes in the area for a couple of years, um, they can actually buy property there. So at least buy one home there. And so that's the kind of thing that maybe eases some of these really, really massive restrictions that have been on the property sector for a while. Um, and then you know, tries to spur spending that way. I think that that's probably more realistic in terms of incremental measures that way that you might see going forward.
3: But Jill, if tier one and tier two cities do further relax home purchase restrictions, that might draw a lot of funds into the big cities and away from the smaller cities where you see the developers that have been in trouble, like Country Garden and Agile. So is that the type of thing that policymakers should do?
11: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the tricky balance part of this, right? Maybe a reason why you're not seeing a massive amount of rollbacks in terms of policies. I mean, at this point, look, uh, what Guangzhou just did, for example, I mean, that's easing some restrictions on uh, first-time home purchases, right? I think that we've also seen, um, you know, within the past couple of weeks, an easing of existing mortgages and such uh, in, in, across the country. Um, it's really about finding a tricky balance, because also just removing all of these, you um, You know restrictions on how many homes you can buy uh, is yeah certainly could I think kind of come back to bite uh, the economy in a bad way. I mean part of the reason why the property sector is in this mess is because of a lot of speculative buying that really ramped up over the last you know several years. You've got companies um you know promising homes that they can't actually build in time. You've got people paying mortgages on houses that don't even really exist. Um, So I think at this point it's a, a measured approach that I think the government is trying to pull off, but it's very tricky here.
3: Jill, thank you, Jill. Bloomberg's China economy and government editor. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom?
1: Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia co-host Brian Curtis. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.
0: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q